The Russian poet Anna Akhmatova was born in 1898 outside St. Petersburg. Her childhood was spent in Tsartskoya Tselo, the summer home of the Tsars and the former residence of the great Russian poet Pushkin. Anna Akhmatova was one of the preeminent Russian poets of modern times. A lyric poet of the highest achievement, she, she suffered the dislocations and the tyrannies of Russian life, dislocations and tyrannies which marked the first half of the 20th century in what came to be the Soviet Union. The Bolshevik Revolution and Stalin in particular came down hard on Akhmatova. Recently divorced from her first husband, the poet Nikolai Gumilyov, she was nonetheless devastated when he was executed by the Bolsheviks in 1921, shortly after the Russian Revolution. She had another brief marriage, and then her third husband, Nikolai Punin, was arrested by Stalin. He died in prison. Her son, Lev, whose father was the executed Gumilyov, was imprisoned in 1942, largely to assure that Akhmatova, one of Russia's most celebrated and best-loved poets, would be silent about the Stalinist terror. Lev was sentenced to 15 years of exile, and he was finally released from that exile in 1956. Akhmatova began as a lyric poet, celebrating love in the Russian countryside and the deep feelings which welled up within her. Her first poem was published at 18, her first book at 23. She was already an accomplished poet by the time of the Russian Revolution. But the pain and the suffering inflicted on her by these multiple deaths and multiple imprisonments grew to be almost too much to bear. And so in the period from 1935 to 1940, with some additions written as late as 1961, Anna Akhmatova wrote a sequence of lyric poems called Requiem. In other words, it is named after the Mass for the Dead. It commemorates those who were imprisoned and died in political incarcerations. It celebrates the memory of those who, like Akhmatova, suffered when their dearest friends, their closest family, suffered the indignities and great suffering of the Russian prisons and the whole gulag, the whole system of imprisonment and concentration camps. Requiem is, I believe, one of the greatest, and I often think the greatest, poems of the 20th century. And what we will do is look at this poem, which is written in 
a series of lyric poems. It's a sequence of lyric poems, beginning with an epigraph and a small prose introduction, and proceeding through 11 sections, although some of them have subsections. We'll be looking at this in two translations. The primary translation is the very fine one of Stanley Kunitz and Max Hayward, but at certain junctures to make things more clear or because the wording seems to be more felicitous, we will look at the translation of D.M. Thomas. Here then is the great, the truly great poem, Requiem, by Anna Akhmatova. The poem begins with an epigraph. No foreign sky protected me. No stranger's wing shielded my face. I stand as witness to the common lot, survivor of that time, that place. What we notice in these four short lines that serve as a headnote to the poem are several words that define who Anna Akhmatova is and what she's doing. No foreign sky protected me, she says. Unlike a number of her contemporaries, she never went into exile and lived in Paris or in London. She is a Russian poet who confronted the difficulties which beset Russia directly. The second line is, no stranger's wing shielded my face. She has no protection from the police powers of the state which come down on her directly, unmediated. She is unprotected from the wrath of Stalin and his henchman Yosko. I stand as witness to the common lot survivor of that time, that place. She is a survivor, although as we will learn in this poem, the price of survival is very high. But most of all, she is a witness. I stand as witness to the common lot. There is a type of poetry written in the 20th century which we have come to call poetry of witness. That is poetry that sees as its mission, the poet feels to be his or her justification for writing, to testify to the injustices, the social horrors of the 20th century. Poetry of witness all comes to us under the rubric, this cannot be forgotten. And words it turns out, are one of the ways in which we can remember and not consign to forgetfulness not just the good things that have happened to us, but the things that are horrible, that must be noted, that must be seen and paid heed to so that they won't be repeated. Following the epigraph, Requiem proceeds with a preface, although it's called instead of a preface. It's a very brief narrative in prose. In the 
first line she mentions Yezhov, who is the person who worked for Stalin and and was the administrator, the perpetrator of some of the worst of the imprisonments. In the terrible years of the Yezhov terror, I spent 17 months waiting in line outside the prison in Leningrad. One day, somebody in the crowd identified me. Standing behind me was a woman with lips blue from the cold who had, of course, never heard me called by name before. Now, she started out of the torpor common to us all and asked me in a whisper. Everyone whispered there. Can you describe this? And I said, I can. Then something like a smile passed fleetingly over what had once been her face. What the woman wants in her pain and suffering outside the prison is to have not herself, but her position, the position of all these women waiting in line to hear word of their husbands or brothers or sons or sisters or to deliver a parcel of bread. What all of these people want is that the suffering, the injustice, the indignity, the pain visited on them not be forgotten. Can you describe this? She says in a whisper, and much is revealed by a parenthesis, which says everyone whispered there. To speak is to risk imprisonment oneself. Can you describe this? And I said, I can. Then something like a smile passed fleetingly over what had once been her face. Her face has been so ravaged by what has happened that it is scarcely recognizable as human anymore, and yet she smiles knowing that all she has seen, experienced, and suffered will not be consigned to silence. But this poem almost was forgotten, almost was consigned to silence. Certain portions of it were published, but the penalties for publication under Stalin were so great and this poem was written primarily to, as we will see, to commemorate uh, the imprisonment of her son, which, as I said before, was meant to force Akhmatova into silence. The penalties for writing were so great that the poem itself was not published entire until relations between East and West began thawing until the 1960s, only a few short years before her death. Let us continue with Akhmatova's Requiem. The poem itself begins with a dedication, and it's called Dedication, and here I will read from the D.M. Thomas translation. The dedication makes clear that this poem is written to and for the patient waiting fellow human beings who stood before the prison, who with 
Akhmadova waited in grief, who with Akhmadova heard their beloved sentenced, who as the years passed themselves were dispersed across Russia, some of them themselves going as the penultimate line says, beyond the circle of the moon into the blizzards of the permafrost, some of the people she waited with lived lives of suffering, of misery, of forgetfulness. Some of them were themselves imprisoned and sent to camps in the Gulag in Siberia. So here is dedication. It begins with, I think, an extraordinary comparison. It says, the mountains bow before this anguish, the great river does not flow. That is, the pain, the anguish of the mothers of the imprisoned is so great that even the high places are made low, to quote the Bible, even the waters of the flowing river stop and cease flowing. But although the most enormous of natural phenomena can be changed or stopped, the bolts of the prison stay frozen. Normal people can experience things, the poem goes on to say, but we don't know it. We who stand outside the prison, we're obsessive. We only hear the tramp of boots. Then Akhmatova recalls someone who has heard the sentence, either execution or banishment into exile in Siberia. Uh, and even the sentence is not unexpected, the hopelessness on hearing it is immense. And finally, the section begin, ends with the dedication I mentioned to her friends of those two years I stood in hell. That is when she stood before the prison. Here is dedication. The mountains bow before this anguish. The great river does not flow. In mortal sadness, the convicts languish. The bolts stay frozen. There's someone who still feels the sunset's glow, someone who can still distinguish day from night from whom, for whom the fresh wind blows. But we don't know it. We're obsessive. We only hear the tramp of boots, abrasive keys scraping against our flesh. Rising as though for early mass, through the capital of beasts we'd thread, met, more breathless than the dead, Mr. Neva, lower sun. Ahead, hope was still singing, endlessly evasive. The sentence, and now at last tears flood. She'd thought the months before were loneliness. She's thrown down like a rock. The heart gives up its blood, yet goes swaying. She can still walk. My friends of those two years I stood in hell, 
Oh, all my chance friends lost beyond the circle of the moon, I cry into the blizzards of the permafrost, Goodbye. Goodbye. Still moving into the poem, we turn to the prologue. This is a brief section, a brief lyric. Uh, we'll read the translation by D.M. Thomas. You'll see three things conjoined in this lyric poem. Death, the prison, and railway yards. The railway yards are themselves prisons where men and women are collected awaiting transport to yet further prisons. And from the railway yards, they will be taken by locomotives either to those prisons or to the Gulag, to Siberia or points distant where they will do hard labor. Twice in this short poem, death appears. Twice railroads appear. Prisons are everywhere. And Leningrad city swayed like a needless appendix to its prisons. In writing about the horrors of the American Civil War, Walt Whitman noted in a prose piece called Specimen Days that all of Washington, D.C. was like a vast appendage of the hospitals wherein the Union and Southern dead were hospitalized. So here we have that same sense that, that the city is only an appendage of the prisons, that Russia has become one great prison house. And at the end, innocent Russia rise under bloodstained boots. These are the black, shiny leather boots of the police and the military forces and under the tires of the Black Marias. A Black Maria is a black automobile, shiny, ghastly, efficient, which signals that the police have come and usually signals that the police will take someone away. So here then is prologue to Akhmatova's Requiem. In those years, only the dead smiled, glad to be at rest. And Leningrad city swayed like a needless appendix to its prisons. It was then that the railroad yards were asylums of the mad. Short were the locomotive's farewell songs. Stars of death stood above us. And innocent Russia writhed under blood-stained boots and under the tires of Black Maria's. Thus does Akhmatova define the historical period. Prison, railroads to prison, death. Russia, innocent, trampled down under the boots of the forces of power, of totalitarian power. Now we enter the poem itself, which is in numbered sections. Section number one is the arrest of Nikolai Punin, as she explained in a letter. The first line, they took you away at daybreak. And what this poem does, as happened in her life, it conflates, it puts together things that have happened. So we will 
have put together on top of the incarceration of her son where she stood before the prison, we have superimposed on this because she feels that at the same time, the arrest of her third husband, which led to what would be his death in prison. And later we will have deaths and crucifixions, which will be reminiscent not only of what she fears for her son, but what, what happened to her son's father, Nikolai Gumilyov, who was, as I said, executed by the Bolsheviks. In this arrest, the pilgrimage to the prison, which she takes throughout this poem, in actuality begins. The arrest has occurred, she's barely awake, and she follows to the prison. There is confusion in the waiting room of the prison. Children were crying. Candlelight was guttering uh, in the translation we're reading by Cunitz and Hayward here. Uh, the holy candle gasped for air. There's an icon which he kisses before he's let off. Sweat seems to blossom or bloom on his brow. And like the wives of soldiers in the Tsar's army in earlier times, she will stand and wait, and not just wait, but howl under the Kremlin towers. So her pilgrimage, her period of, of waiting here begins. Section one. At dawn they came and took you away. You were my dead. I walked behind. In the dark room children cried, the holy candle gasped for air. Your lips were chilled from the icon's kiss. Sweat bloomed on your brow those deathly flowers. Like the wives of Peter's troopers in Red Square, I'll stand and howl under the Kremlin towers. Section two reveals her situation. It's a balladic section. It has only eight lines. The lines are in two-line couplets. They are extremely simple. The rhythms, the clarity, the, the simplicity of the images are reminiscent of the simplicity of folk poetry. The first four lines are very much the setting of a ballad. They focus on the river and the moon and the moon leaping over the sill of the window and into the room where it encounters a shadow. So the first four lines which I'll read are the natural world. Quietly flows the quiet dawn. Into my house slips the yellow moon. It leaps the sill with its cap askew and balks at the shadow, that yellow moon. And then there is a pause. It's not written into the page, but one feels it because we move from the natural world to what the natural world encounters. You remember earlier we saw the natural world stopping 
being leveled, the, the river stops, the mountains are leveled by the grief of those who stand outside the prisons, but the human world is something different. The bars do not move, the locks do not open in the face of that grief. Here, the moonlight slips over the sill of the window and encounters a shadow, and the shadow, it turns out, is cast by a woman who is within the room, alone and sick. Here's part two. Quietly flows the quiet dawn. Into my house slips the yellow moon. It leaps the sill with its cap askew and balks at a shadow, that yellow moon. This woman is sick to her marrow bone. This woman is utterly alone. With husband dead, with son away in jail, pray for me. Pray. That is her situation. Gumilyev, the father, is dead. Punin, the husband, is dead. Lev, her son, is away in jail. And the, the kind of hopelessness of the situation is, I believe, revealed by the repetition of the prey in the last lines. It's such an exhortation, and it is so unlikely to do good that it must be repeated. This woman is sick to her marrow bone. This woman is utterly alone, with husband dead, with son away in jail. Pray for me. Pray. If section one is the arrest and the beginning of the pilgrimage to the prison, and section two is her situation, section three is the beginning of the dark night of the soul, which is the dark night in reality. She is truly benighted as her son is imprisoned. It's very brief. It's four lines. And in the fourth line, there is an ellipsis. That is, there's a pause marked out by dots. And then following that, and on a different line, is the final word, night. The night which descends because she cannot bear what she has to bear. Not... Not mine, it's somebody else's wound. I could never have borne it, so take the thing that happened, hide it, stick it in the ground, whisk the lamps away. Night. That's about as brief as a poem can be. It is the strategy of denial. The pain is not, not mine. Twice it's denied. Not, not mine. It's somebody else's wound, she says. I could never have borne it. Of course, she does bear it. And this poem testifies to her capacity, her strength for enduring suffering. But when this first happens, all she can do is say, this pain is not mine, it's someone else's, I can't bear it, take the thing, it's such a, 
Such a human response. So take the thing that happened, hide it, stick it in the ground, whisk the lamps away. I don't want to see it. I, I bury it. Uh, put it away. Repress it. Get it out of my life. I cannot stand that my son is in jail. And then it ends with a horrible word, night. This is not a night that covers up and hides away and sticks in the ground and whisks the lamp away. It is true that night is the opposite of lamps and light. The night is, is not visible and yet night is what descends on her as she tries to push away what she cannot bear. But of course, night is now her element, not the night of hiding, but the night of benightedness of the terrible darkness of the soul. And there's a dramatic transition now to part four, which begins with something much lighter than this heavy night, but it's framed in part four with a an introduction. They should have shown you. That, that line means youth does not foresee what history and life have in store. If only when I was young, she says, if only I had known. Well, no, it might not have helped, but she presents herself as young, and I'll read both translations because they indicate the playfulness of the language of description of her, of her youth. In, in Thomas, it is uh, someone should have shown you little jester, little teaser, blue vein charmer, laughing eyes, lionized, sylvan, princessly sinner. To what point you would come? They should have shown you what point you would have come to. Little jester, little teaser, blue vein charmer, laughing eyed, lionized, sylvan, princessly sinner. In the translation by Stanley Kunitz and Max Hayward, it is, they should have shown you Mocker, delight of your friends, heart's thief, naughtiest girl of Pushkin's town. This picture of your faded years. They should have shown you these things because now the poem proceeds. Under the glowering wall you stand, shabby, three hundredth in the line, clutching a parcel in your hand. I think that's the single clearest image of the situation this poem witnesses. Not the emotional situation, but the actual visible situation. When the woman says in the first part, in that prose preface, can you describe this? The literal seeing is what we're seeing here. What she really means is, can you describe the pain? Under the red brick glowering wall you stand shabby, three hundredth in the line, clutching a parcel of bread in your hand. And the poem ends with no sound, no sound in one version or in the Thomas version, yet it's mute, even the prison poplar's tongues in its cheek as it's swaying. Even the tree is silent. And I'll talk about that silence after I read Section 4 of Requiem. They should have shown you, mocker, delight of your friends, heart's thief, 
naughtiest girl of Pushkin's town, this picture of your faded years, as under the glowering wall you stand, shabby, three hundredth in the line, clutching a parcel in your hand, and the New Year's ice scorched by your tears. See, there the prison poplar bending, no sound, no sound, yet how many innocent lives are ending. That no sound, no sound, that muteness in the other translation is both actual in the line so often there is no sound. There is at times, as we've already seen, the keening of grief, and there is at times as when she is recognized as a poet, this very brief conversation, can you describe this? But mostly people stand in silence. To speak in Stalinist Russia is to open yourselves up for imprisonment, betrayal. So there is in fact no sound, but it's not just factual, it's symbolic. There is no sound because these horrible things, these hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands, millions of people are going off to imprisonment and no one says anything. Not domestically where to raise one's voice is to be destroyed, not internationally where the Soviet Union is left to its own devices. So the muteness outside the prison, that lack of sound, is both a description of what happens as she stands shabby 300th in the line clutching a parcel in her hand. It's also a reference to the world around, both the world of Russian society and the entire world, which looks on or perhaps looks away in silence. If section four shows the tremendous disjunction between the, the youth of gayness, of being a heart's thief and delight of your friends, of the transformation from, from that to the shabby silent waiting, if time is foreshortened into before and after, Part five emphasizes time as duration. Time in part five is lengthy. For 17 months, I've cried aloud. It begins in the Kunitz Hayward translation. I will switch over though to the more clear translation by D.M. Thomas. Let me just read it and then we'll come back to it. For 17 months I've called you to come home. I've pleaded, oh, my son, my terror, groveled at the hangman's feet. All is confused eternally. So much I can't say who's man, who's beast anymore, nor even how long till execution. Simply the flowers of dust, censers ringing, tracks from a far settlement in nowhere's ice. And everywhere the glad eye of a huge star's still tightening vice. 
as I said, if section four shows before and after, section five shows 17 months time transformed into confusion and emptiness. Those lines, all is confused eternally so much, I can't say who's man, who's beast anymore, nor even how long till execution are lines we encounter often in 20th century poetry. T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland is about the confusion of modern life and the inability to see one's way. William Butler Yeats' great poem, The Second Coming, begins, Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. But neither Yeats nor Eliot has the sense of confronting quite so directly the confusions of the 20th century as Akhmatova does in these lines. All is confused eternally so much I can't say who's man, who's beast anymore, nor even how long till execution. Time has become confused and mixed up in these 17 months. And it is the reference to the execution as she stands by the prison. It is the inability to tell who is good from who is bad as she witnesses the incarceration that roots her sense of confusion in an actuality that is, despite Yeats' half-hearted involvement in the struggle for Irish independence, despite Eliot's involvement in the life of, of uh, a London trying to cope with the 20th century. Despite those things, it is Akhmatova who penetrates through her experience, which is rendered in the poem directly to the heart of that confusion. This poem ends with an image which I cannot explain. Poems do that sometimes. Everywhere the glad eye of a huge star still tightening vice, or in the Kunitz Hayward translation, night of stone whose bright enormous star stares me straight in the eyes, promising death. Ah, uh, soon. Somehow the tightening vice, the death that might be coming, are connected to the star which shines overhead. This is not a star of guidance but the star which leads in some strange way to loss and perdition. Section six is again brief, eight short lines, and we're in yet a third kind of time here, not in the absolute disjuncture uh, the rupture of time that we saw in section four, and not in the meaningless continuity of month after month of part five. Now we are in a time which is cyclical. What occurs here are the white nights, the 
Russian winter, Russian be, being so far north, the Russian winter is uh, at the very heart of the winter near the solstice, there is light all night long. And these are called white nights and they'll occur here. What what has happened is that the the weeks fly out of mind in the first line and she can't remember the arrest. I doubt that it occurred when her child went to prison, the white nights blazed above and now the white nights are blazing again. So a, a full year has passed. We're in cyclical time. Things are repeating themselves. But what she notices is not so much the repetition, but the end of the cycles, the death that will dominate cycles and time. This section, section six, is a recognition that prison is a step toward death, toward what she calls crucifixion and imitatio dei, that is, Christ is being imitated here again, not just in the case of her son, but with everyone, uh, innocence is being nailed up on the cross. Innocence is suffering. Death comes to the wrong people and with no justification. Here then is section six. The weeks fly out of mind. I doubt that it occurred. How into your prison child the white nights blazing stared and still as I draw breath they fix their buzzard eyes on what the high cross shows this body of your death. Here is a recognition that just as Christ came into the world to live as men and women and die as men and women and so redeem men and women, so human beings in this world live in suffering and die in suffering as Christ did, although salvation seems very far from this poem. Section seven is almost at the heart of the poem. We're moving into greater and greater intensity. It's called the sentence. And as you recall, her son, Lev Gamilyov, uh, was imprisoned and then sentenced to 15 years of hard labor in the Gulag. In the poem, there is an opposition between stones and life. The opening two lines read, the word dropped like a stone on my still living breast. And as there's an opposition between the inanimate, which is what that word is, that word of cruelty, that her son is going to be sent away, that she will be deprived of him and may never see him again, that he may die in this labor camp. That stony word is dropped on her still living breast. And although she says she's prepared for something like this, still she has so much to do today, she says in the second of the three stanzas, so much to do today. Kill memory. Kill pain. 
whereas the state may kill people. What she tries to do is kill the memory of what the state is doing. By killing memory, she will try to kill pain. There's a relation. You can't kill pain. But if you can destroy memory, if you can push memory away, and we recall section 3, in which he said, so take the thing that happened, hide it, stick it in the ground, whisk the lamps away. She's still trying to do this, kill memory, kill pain, turn heart into a stone. The only way to endure the stoniness of this sentence, of the words, you are banished. The only way to endure that is to turn the still living breast, the beating heart, into a stone. And then an extraordinarily poignant line, she says, and yet prepare to live again. The struggle in section seven is between this horrible news, the night, the emptiness, the confusion, the pain, the attempt to repress and become inanimate and stony, all of that on one side. And again, it's a kind of time in the, in, in the human time that continues. There are still meals to be eaten and money to be earned, or in this poem, there are still parties to which one receives invitations. Summer has come, and with it the gaiety of ongoing life. The line that she hits us with is, turn heart into a stone and yet prepare to live again. Emily Dickinson addresses this when she says in a poem about grief, we cannot put our lives away, even though our own lives are shattered. Robert Frost ends a poem in which a young man, the poem is called Out Out, in which a young man cuts off his arm with a saw, he doesn't pay attention, and, and before anyone knows, he bleeds to death. And his family, it's dinner time, end up going into dinner. The last line of the poem is, and they, not being the one dead, turn to their affairs. And W.H. Auden, in his brilliant Musée de Beaux-Arts, speaks about Icarus falling out of the sky into the ocean, and how Bruegel painted it. And the beautiful painted ship, which must have seen something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky had somewhere to get to and sailed calmly on. So life goes on even when life seems to us over. And so in this poem, when the sentence comes and her life seems over, when she turns her heart to stone, yet she has to prepare to live again, although she says it's not really life, it's, it's not quite life. The final line ends with uh, two stunning images, the opposition of the brilliant, radiant day, the summer day outside, a day meant for parties and fullness and happiness and feasting and carousing, the brilliant day, and the, the house is empty, 
because her son is not in it. The house is empty because the heart within the, the human body has turned to stone and there's nothing living inside. The house is empty because even though summer has returned, Akhmatova's life is filled with a great emptiness. Here is the brilliant lyric poem, The Sentence. The word dropped like a stone on my still living breast. Confess, I was prepared and somehow ready for the test. So much to do today. Kill memory, kill pain, turn heart into a stone and yet prepare to live again. Not quite. Hot summer's feast brings rumors of carouse. How long have I foreseen this brilliant day, this empty house? Gorgeous, let me read it again. The word dropped like a stone on my still living breast. Confess I was prepared and somehow ready for the test. So much to do today. Kill memory, kill pain, turn heart into a stone, and yet prepare to live again. Not quite. Hot summer's feast brings rumors of carouse. How long have I foreseen this brilliant day, this empty house? Section 8 is entitled To Death. She wants death to end her pain, her suffering, her confusion, her grief, the emptiness we just saw of that empty house. You will come in any case, so why not now, she asks in the first line, and then says how long I wait and wait. She opens the door in this poem for death, simple and magical to enter, and she says, assume then any form that suits your wish, come and shoot me, strangle me, overcome me with typhoid, even, so much do I want to die, even send the secret police for me. The, the, these are the people in the blue hat bands who march up the stairs. That was the one of the parts of the uniform of the secret police. Uh, and she says, out of this fairy tale you wrote, it's, it's like human beings invented the secret police and then, then the fairy tale became actuality. It's a, a fairy tale we're sick of hearing, she says. Again and again, day and night, the janitor showing the secret police the way to their next detainee. Even this will suffice, she says, if it brings death. It's, and I quote the poem, it's all the same to me. And then she refers to the Siberia to which her son is being sent. The Yenisei, that's a river in Siberia, swirls, the North Star shines. And the horror of being in exile, of laboring in the cold, 
of living with almost no food, of probably perishing far from his mother, his friends, all he knows, without living the things we hope for in life that closes in, clouds over her loved one's eyes. So here is to death, which he wishes for as a way out of her. You will come in any case, so why not now? How long I wait and wait. The bad times fall. I have put out the light and opened the door for you because you are simple and magical. Assume then any form that suits your wish. Take aim and blast at me with poison shot. Or strangle me like an efficient mugger. Or else infect, infect me. Typhus be my lot. Or... Spring out of the fairy tale you wrote, the one we're sick of hearing day and night, where the blue hat band marches up the stairs, led by the janitor, pale with fright. It's all the same to me. The Yenisei swirls, the north star shines as it will shine forever, and the blue luster of my loved one's eyes is clouded over by the final horror. In section nine, Akhmatova tells us that if death cannot be her portion, if death will be her son's portion, all she has for her, all that is in front of her is madness. Already madness lifts its wing to cover half my soul, begins section nine. It is the wine of which she drinks and to which she will become addicted, the opiate wine. It's the lure of the dark valley. She admits defeat in this section. She has been done in by what has happened. And she admits defeat because she has nothing left. No use to fall down on my knees and beg for mercy's sake. And these terrifying lines, nothing I counted mine out of my life is mine to take. Not my son's terrible eyes. She runs through a list of things. Nothing is hers anymore. Not even the poem concludes the thin cricket sound of consolation's parting word, not even her son's words to her as she leaves after a brief visit. Goodbye, mother, I'll be all right. Not even those bring consolation. Not even those remain as she is overcome with grief, devastation, woe. So in this section she confronts the madness that is to sweep over her. Section 9 of Anna Akhmatova's Requiem. Already madness lifts its wing to cover half my soul. That taste of opiate wine, lure of the dark valley. Now everything is clear. I admit my defeat. The tongue of my ravings in my ear is the tongue of a stranger. No use to fall down on my knees and beg for mercy's sake. Nothing 
I counted mine out of my life is mine to take, not my son's terrible eyes, not the elaborate stone flower of grief, not the day of the storm, not the trial of the visiting hour, not the dear coolness of his hands, not the lime tree's agitated shade, not the thin cricket sound of consolation's parting word. If section nine is madness, going mad over the feeling of, or in response to the feeling of defeat and alienation as a way to lose the pain, as a way to cope with everything being out of control, that nothing is hers in her life, not the visit to the prison or the day of the arrest or even her son's consoling words, nothing is hers, not even consolation. We might ask what is beyond that, and what is beyond that is the end of the poem, although following the end there are two epilogues. The end of the poem is section 10, and it's called Crucifixion. It begins with an epigraph, which will be repeated in the poem, Do not weep for me, mother, when I am in my grave. I said earlier that this poem uses an imitatio dei, or imitation of God. In this, her son is Christ, and she is Mary, the mother of Christ. There are two parts to section 10. There's a double drama here. In the first drama, we have the crucifixion of the son with the son crying out in Jesus' words, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? And then a second section, which is the drama of the mother. I think of the second section, which is only four lines long, as is the first, as a true drama. It has five characters. Jesus is crucified in the background and silent in part two. Mary Magdalene is filled with grief as the poet has been throughout this poem. Christ's disciple looks on, torn but stone-faced, staring at the agony of Christ. Then there is a crowd of people hinted at. They are like a Greek chorus commenting on the action, and their comments here are not in words, but in actions, or rather inactions. And finally, there is Mary, mother of the dying Jesus, but Mary, more particularly, Anna Akhmatova and the other women who stand in line outside the prison. It seems to me that part two is among, as a, as a poem, four lines though it is, is among the very few uh, lines of our century that are almost beyond not only comparison, but commentary. There's not much one can say about them. Uh, they are as poignant and moving as human language can be. So as here is part 10, 
the terrifying climax of Requiem. Crucifixion. Do not weep for me, mother, when I am in my grave. One. A choir of angels glorified the hour. The vault of heaven was dissolved in fire. Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Mother, I beg you, do not weep for me. Two. Mary Magdalene beat her breasts and sobbed. His dear disciple, stone-faced, stared. His mother stood apart. No other looked into her secret eyes. Nobody dared. Let me read that second part again. Mary Magdalene beat her breasts and sobbed. His dear disciple, stone-faced, stared. His mother stood apart. No other looked into her secret eyes. Nobody dared. Of course, poetry goes sometimes where nothing else can go. And even though the agony of the mother whose son is lost is beyond our capacity to gaze upon, to inquire into, this poem does, with not just sympathy, but from the voice of the mother, does exactly that. This is a poem which allows us to dare look into the secret eyes of the mother whose son is lost and crucified. From this point, the poem has nowhere to go but to its ending, and Akhmatova writes us two epilogues. Part one is a personal lyric. It is a lyric which has two parts. In the first part, it explains how grief and suffering have inscribed in and on the actual body their shadows, the record of their having come. In a series of images, the lined faces of women show how terror and suffering are inscribed on the cheeks. The gray hair of people, hair that has turned gray or even white overnight from the shock of imprisonment, is another inscription on the body of what has happened. More temporally, smiles fade, and in every dry titter, in every cough, there is a quavering of fear. That's the first 
part of the poem, and the second part is an acknowledgement of prayer. And I pray, she says, not for myself alone. And I pray not for myself alone, for all who stood outside the jail in bitter cold or summer's blaze with me under that blind red wall. Uh, this returns us to the beginning of the poem, where as we remember in the epigraph, a woman says, can you describe this? And Akhmatova says, yes, I can. I think this is the point before we end the poem to acknowledge how seamless is the conjoining in this poem of things that are usually apart. The personal, the individual is merged, I think, seamlessly with the historical. Let's remember back to the very beginning of the poem, the epigraph, no foreign sky protected me, no stranger's wings shielded my face. I stand as witness to the common lot, survivor of that time, that place. This poem is about her survival and about her witness, but the witness is not just her portion, but the common lot. And so at this juncture, she prays not for myself, but for all who stood outside the jail. The, per the personal and the historical come together. Another way of saying that is the individual and the social merge. But so do the lyric poem, that intense expression of individual emotion of which this poem is comprised, and the epic in some mysterious and magical way, this collocation, this bringing together of a series of lyric poems creates an epic of Russia in the 20th century as it faces uh, catastrophic cruelty. So the personal, the historical, the lyrical, and the epic, the temporal, her own experience, and the timeless that merging with all mothers who suffer in all times as their children suffer the fate of both Akhmatova's son and Mary's son, Jesus. Narrative time, the time of the story, and this poem recounts the story of the poet as she moves from the first arrest through thoughts of death, through grief, through wondering why she didn't know these things when she was younger, through the sentencing, through the descent into madness, through an unexplainable, undescribable agony of motherhood. As narrative time moves forward, we are also in the presence of lyric time in which the measure of things is the deepening intensity of emotion. Truth, historical truth, comes together in the most amazing way with beauty. Although this poem is about one of the uglier, and certainly sordid isn't even an appropriate word, one of the most 
horrible things that has happened in the 20th century. It is a poem of overpowering beauty. Art not only gives shape to truth, but makes truth beautiful without ever erasing its ugly consequences. The individual self, so alone and alienated, so unable to cope in this poem, is also a self marked by solidarity. And I pray not for myself alone, she says in this section, but for all who stood outside the jail in her own alienation, often touched on in this poem, she shares a condition with so many others. And so the essential loneliness of each of us as we bear the burdens of our lives is conjoined with the shared existence. All of us are lonely, suffering souls. All of us not only stand in line awaiting our fate, but speak to each other and share with one another that sense of being in line. There is in the poem an immense powerlessness. In section nine we read, nothing I counted mine out of my life is mine to take, not my son's terrible eyes, passage which ends with not even consolation's parting word. And yet that powerlessness is conjoined with the power of witness. Can you describe this? And I said, I can. Then something like a smile passed fleetingly over what had once been her face. So the helplessness which, which Akhmatova feels so strongly in this poem is joined with and argued against. The helplessness doesn't disappear, but the ability to make out of helplessness something called witness, statement, art, is a testimony to both the frailty of human existence and to its power. And finally, the poem conjoins an immense anger that the things that have been done to her, husband dead, son in jail, pray for me, pray, that these things could have been done. This, this anger is conjoined with compassion for those who have had similar things done for them. And the outrage expressed in the poem is combined with prayer. Out of her painful learning in the epilogue, she concludes, and I pray, not for myself alone. So here is the first epilogue. I've learned how faces fall to bone, how under the eyelids terror lurks, how suffering inscribes on cheeks the hard lines of its cuneiform texts, how glossy black or ash fair locks turn overnight to tarnished silver, how smiles fade on submissive lips and fear quavers in a dry titter. And I pray, not for myself alone, for all who stood outside the jail in bitter cold or summer's blaze with me under that blind red wall.
The second epilogue has two parts. The first, in which he sees, hears, and touches all of the women. I should like to call you by name, she says, but they have lost the lists. I have woven for them a great shroud out of the poor words I overheard them speak. I remember them always and everywhere. And if they shut my tormented mouth, through which a hundred million of my people cry, let them remember me also. And a second half, in which she says, if they should ever build me a statue, place it not in the place of my birth or where I was growing up, beside, but beside the prison, lest in blessed death I should forget the grinding scream of the Black Marias, and let that statue, as the snow melts, shed a tear for those who are imprisoned. Here, then, is the conclusion to Anna Akhmatova's Requiem. Again, the hands of the clock are nearing the unforgettable hour. I see, hear, touch all of you, the cripple they had to support painfully to the end of the line, the moribund, and the girl who would shake her beautiful head and say, I come here as if it were my home. I should like to call you all by name, but they have lost the list. I have woven for them a great shroud out of the poor words I overheard them speak. I remember them always and everywhere, and if they shut my tormented mouth through which a hundred million of my people cry, let them remember me also. And if ever in this country they should want to build me a monument, I consent to that honor but only on condition that they erected not on the seashore where I was born. My last links there were broken long ago, nor by the stump in the royal gardens where an inconsolable young shade is seeking me, but here where I stood for three hundred hours and where they never, never opened the doors for me, lest in blessed death I should forget the grinding scream of the Black Marias the hideous clanging gate, the old woman wailing like a wounded beast. And may the melting snow drop like tears from my motionless bronze eyelids and the prison pigeons coo above me and the ships sail slowly down the Neva. So powerful is this poem of witness that she wishes to witness, even after death, to shed a tear for those who have been imprisoned and for those who wait for them. And that witnessing and shedding a tear is exactly what Requiem allows us in this later day to do. Anna Akhmatova's poem is surely one of the triumphs of the 20th century.